Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get an interview with those in the know within the music industry and give the flowers of those while they're here so they can be celebrated. Right now with me, I have one-third of the 90s R&B group Shamari. They were signed to Mercury Records, had their hit song, If You Feel the Need, and just recently, they dropped some unreleased material with Mr. Yep Yep himself, King of New Jack Swing, Teddy Riley, Mr. Rasan Langley. Rasan, thank you for coming to Beyond the Album Cover. Hey, you're truly welcome, man. Thank you for having me here. I'm glad that this worked out. Yeah, man. Um, we had a little meltdown, but I'm glad that we finally got it together. So how you been holding up with... Uh, COVID going on, because I know a lot of people that would normally be touring around this time or doing gigs, that's kind of gone to a halt. Yeah, yeah, well, actually, it slowed everything down, as you know, for everybody, um, but it also allowed a lot of creative time and creative space to kind of get some things done and get a lot of ideas um, uh, finished, I should say, because um in the world that I live in, it's always hard to try to complete things at certain times, you know, considering my schedule and everything, but it allowed me to be able to complete a lot that I wanted to. Um, so I'm very, I'm okay. I'm, I'm very thankful, you know, I'm, I'm prayerful of, and for everyone that's been dealing with these difficult times, but very thankful that it allowed me to uh, be in a creative space to be creative. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely a fruitful time for myself as well with the podcast and everything which you can find on most major streaming platforms and video content on youtube.com slash J5. Now getting into it, where did your love of music come from and who are some of your musical influences and what led you to want to form Shamari with your brother Namdi and your cousin Troy? Um, well, the influence came from, uh, from my dad um, and his brothers. They actually were the Langley Five before the Jackson was the Jackson Five. Um, and I actually found out that piece of history today because I shot a video for um, a new single that's coming out that we'll be talking about later on. But my love for music came from my dad and the family. They were touring musicians and my dad and them played with all the Greeks back in the days. Um, and the love came from my dad and then my mom, my love for singing came from my mom because my mom was always uh, singing around the house and, and all of those things. So it was definitely family, um, family oriented. Influences, uh, Al Jarreau, um, uh, uh, Howard Hewitt. Um, definitely you gotta add Stevie in there, uh, Donnie Hathaway. I mean, those are just a few of the influences, but um, I can go on and on for influences for different reasons, but those are my influences and that's how I got started. And the love came. Okay. And as far as Shamari goes, were you guys kicking around different names and cutting your teeth in the talent show circuit around New Haven? Um, well, before we started to come out as far as talent shows and stuff like that, we uh, came up with with the name Shamari first. Um, we had 10 names that uh, we had on a paper that we started off with. And we went through a couple of books of names um, and um, they were all uh, Swahili names. Um, we got the books from my dad um, because my dad was, you know, he's, he's always been multicultural and um, always, uh, into a lot of different languages from different countries and followed a lot of things. So we got the books from my dad and we had 10 names that were on the paper and we just kept dwindling the names down as to which one we were gonna do. We had chose one for one reason and then we scratched it off and we said, no, that this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit. Then um, when it came to Shamara, we felt like it really fit us because um, Shamari means to strive and to be forceful. And that's something that we've always been taught to do is to strive and just, you know, continue to push on regardless of your circumstances. So we felt like Shamari was a great fit for us. 
Mm-hmm. And now I know a lot of people think that Connecticut is the forgotten state in the tri-state area with New York and New Jersey. I know a lot of people outside would think of Connecticut, of Bristol, which is where ESPN is headquartered, WWE is headquartered in Connecticut as well, and UConn out of stores. So did you guys feel that you had to do a whole lot extra to make sure that we got to put Connecticut on the map, on the music scene? Yeah, that was always a mission of ours, you know, because every time we went somewhere, people would always think that when we spoke of New Haven, that it was this big farm area. You know, they thought we lived on farms and we had uh, animals and, you know, we milked cows and stuff like that. The only way that they really identified with it um, at that time was, was yeah, because of the uh, college and everything like that. So they thought it was, you know, uh, more of a, uh, they didn't know it was as as urban as it was (laughs) until we described, you know, what the lifestyle and everything was like back at home. So it was definitely uh, big for us to make sure that we proved that New Haven at the time had a voice and people knew that there was more than just us as talent that was in New Haven. Mm-hmm. And then as far as you guys performing in and around the talent show circuit, was it because of that reputation that led to you guys getting your deal with Mercury or did you guys send demos and shop it to various labels and Mercury was just the highest bidder? To be honest with you, we, we didn't shop any demos. You know, we weren't even thinking of, of shopping demos at, at the time. Um, we used to just cut records at home and just play it for our friends. You know, um, us at the time, that was satisfying for us at the time. Um, The way that it became something that uh, turned into something that we started thinking of industry was um, my cousin, Stizo, Stizo, God rest his soul, Stizo Williams. Um, He's the one who was very instrumental in um, actually walking us into the manager that we got in helping us to look at our music as business instead of just creating for the fellas around the neighborhood and stuff like that. Um, so Steezo is a big, 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 big reason why we um, stuck to the business and we started thinking more business-like and thinking about getting the deal because uh, he walked us right in, man, you know, um, to sleeping bag at the time. Right. Um, And it was funny because, you know, we we were on our way to New York City and, you know, we're city kids and, you know, we're not thinking of the business side of it. So, you know, we were hungry and we wanted something to eat. And he was like, listen, man, you know, do you want a record deal or do you want to go get a sandwich? Like, you know, you got to make the choice between the two. So at that time, he was just kind of teaching us um, the way of the business and just letting us know how things go at that time. So um, big ups to uh, Cousin Steezo, man. May he sleep in peace. Yeah, I didn't know Steezo was your cousin. For those of you that don't know who Steezo was, Steezo was a dancer for EPMD and later put out his own solo records with the big hit, It's My Turn. Classic old right. school hip hop. And and he was responsible for the birth of Skull Snaps too. that record which is It's My Turn, which is a a very traditional record in uh, the hip-hop industry right now, Skull Snaps. Mm, And you mentioned Sleeping Bag, and that was back in the days when you had all these indie record labels that were doing rap back in the day. You mentioned Sleeping Bag, you had Wild Pitch, you had Enjoy, you had Cold Chillin', which was through Warner yep. Brothers and Marley Mall. So by you guys being in the Tri-State, you heard a lot of the early hip-hop, either on KISS or BLS, before it made its way out to other regions. Yeah, well, you know, the good thing about um, New Haven um, is that New Haven's always been a melting pot of talent, you know, uh, whether it be producers, whether it be artists, whether it be uh, musicians, you know, there's been a lot of people um, that have come out of Connecticut and have done great things and still are doing great things in music right now. So um, 
But you're right as as Connecticut being looked at you know, worldwide as the forgotten state because um, if you are in conversation as far as industry is concerned, they always say that Connecticut is the state or uh, the state that got skipped over, you know, when it comes to things like that. But um, there's a lot of great things happening in Connecticut and a lot of great people doing a lot of great things out there. So I'm proud to be part of Connecticut history. Mm. Now, once you guys got signed to Mercury, did you have any interactions with, I believe, Ed Eckstein? Ed Eckstein is actually, yeah, no, no worries, man. Ed Eckstein, a lot of people don't know that Ed Eckstein is the son of um, jazz great Billy Eckstein. A lot of people don't know that. Um, Ed was very instrumental in making sure that we understood the business, not just wanting to come in and be artists. He was one of those guys who came in and he said, you know, he'll sit you in the office. Now, this is the president of the company. Um, at this time, this wasn't really heard of at that time. You know, it's like you had to go through different channels. You know, you go through A&R, you know, you go through artist development. Like all of these things are things that we went through. And Ed was very instrumental in making sure that um, we had all of the resources and tools that we needed in order for us to be able to sustain as artists. So um, a huge, huge shout out to uh, Ed Eckstein, who is just, he's a great person, very great person. Yeah, and that's a rarity because normally when you're young, getting in the game, you're going to get a contract that's not in your favor. You're not going to find out about it until later in when you get your check and like, how come I only get in this much, but everybody yep. else is riding around in Benzes while I'm driving around in the Pinto? Yeah, yeah, man. And, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, at the time when we came in, um, they were just cutting checks like water, you know, and uh, we thought that the record company was our bank. You know, we <laughs> we always needed something, you know, and I have to say that even though our hands were always out trying to get the newest equipment and do this and do that, the record company rarely, rarely, rarely told us no, man. So, you know, they were a big, big, big part of helping us to continue our musical journey. Mm. Now, you mentioned before you got to deal with Mercury, you guys had the home studio set up. What was some of that early production set up like? Were you doing it like Teddy Riley, where you were using the bathroom as your vocal booth and just maybe had an SPC here or a TR-808 here? or a yep. Tascom there, or insert whatever old school technology here. Man, we had all of that, man. And one of the things that we had that was rare at the time that a lot of people weren't really using um, was EPS, ASR, the Ensonic. Um, we found that to be like one of the greatest things for us because um, with the Ensonic, you could, you could trick your loops. You know, like I used to spend days on just getting loops, you know, so I'd spend, you know, one day getting a loop. I'd spend the next day um, on drums. Another day would be on hi-hats. Uh, one would be on, you know, samples again. But this Ensonic EPS was amazing. So we used a lot of that and a lot of the other stuff that the other producers used too, man. And, you know, we had a four track. You know, we had an A-track, you know, uh, um, and uh, at that time, you know, you use and, you know, you, you flip around and switch tapes and, and, and do all of these kind of things to help get you to stack your sound and make it nice and fat and stuff like that. It's not like today, man. Today is, they got it made today. <laughs> yep. yep. Way to quote special ed. They got it made now with the Insanique. How did yeah. you trick? How did you trick the sample time? Because I know Prince Paul and Large Professor was saying how they would have to record the sample at a higher speed in order for the sample time to be more because of the limitations of the day, technology-wise. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how we did it. We would speed it up. Um, always did it on forty-five, and then um, we started to find out that we could buy more memory. For um for um, for all of the stuff that we were using too, 
So we just built up on a lot of memory, man. And then it, it became to a point where we tricked it, where the memory became endless. And we were just able to do so many creative things, you know, musically. Um, today, I still, I still use that uh, uh, MPC every now and then too as well because it just it has that warm analog sound man and i just love it you know sometimes you get different vibes and ideas for different stuff so you go to different um tools to be able to use it right and, and it's crazy it to think about those hip-hop and new jack swing records they were made in pretty much home studios you know what marley yeah. was doing with cold chilling yeah. what teddy oh, was yeah. doing out of his apartment in the saint nick projects and it yeah. just had that gritty that dirty unpolished sound because you got to remember back in the day people for those of you that are too young to remember you had to physically go into a studio and the labels would get charged by the hour for the yeah. studio time so you couldn't play around because literally time was money that's right you better believe it man and you better make sure that you came out of there with some finished product or it's gonna be a problem <laughs> right now when you guys got signed to mercury along with your yourself joe released his debut album on mercury brian mcknight yep. was signed to mercury vanessa yep. williams was on mercury through the subsidiary yep. wing i think tony 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 was was still on yep. there i believe yep. and then yeah, tony also, with, yep the tonys were there they were there prior to us yeah with the who yeah, album. they were their album they were their project they were a project ahead of us at the time mm -hmm. um that's when they had first dropped their first album in um when they were finished, well, they had been touring and stuff like that already. So by the time their first album was kind of like dwindling down, that's when the record company got the idea to say, hey, hey you know what? I want to pair you guys with, uh, uh, with Raphael because we always said that we liked Raphael's sound because they, they just had that, at that time, they had that live music sound that we loved. So the record company took um, two of our songs and sent it to Raphael, which was Good Love and Let It Be Me. Those songs were prior, they were done prior to getting to uh, Raphael. So when Raphael got them, we had everything all spread out, all the instruments and everything. He loved our, our uncle, um, shout out to my uncle Henry. He loved our uncle's guitar playing so much that he tried to get him down there, but um, we weren't able to get my uncle involved at the time. But this is when um, Jubu and all of them were there. And Jubu just loved my uncle's style of playing. You know, he's like, yo, your uncle is incredible, man. And it's funny because after I started hearing, after that, I started hearing a lot of um, the influence in uh, Jubu's playing um, from my uncle. So um, those were just like like really great times. We spent like uh, a week in California, a couple of days hanging out, just kind of vibing and getting to know each other. And other days we were recording. But a lot of people don't know that throughout the whole recording of that Everyday Sun has an album, Angie Stone was there the entire way, man. Our big sister, Angie Stone. Right, big she ups was, to Angie um, Stone. Big ups to Angie. She was just doing um, uh, vocal training at that time. And she, she would come in and help us to vocally just get our vocals and everything nice and strong. And first time saying this, like I've, I've never mentioned this before, but on that album, um, I was very uncomfortable at that, at that time because my voice was going through a transition. And... I didn't like the way that I sounded because I I didn't I couldn't get what it was that I used to vocally be able to get comfortably because of the transition that I was going through vocally. So um, when I listen back to some of those songs, I, I tend to laugh at certain parts of those songs because I think of the moments where I was in the studio and I just I just wasn't comfortable and I wasn't feeling you know, 100% myself, but, you know, my brother and my cousin helped me as well as Angie to uh, to push me along, man. And that was actually the album that introduced three boys from Newark. Vincent Herbert, 
Kayama Griffin and Ike Lee, who did um, the production on If You Feel the Need, our single. And all of our music, everything was already done. We did everything here in Connecticut. It was done already. But all of the people that we had gotten with, um, all of the music had been sent to them so they can do um, the reproduction on it and kind of beef it up and get the sound industry um, industry ready is what they call it. So it was pretty much an album that was polished because like you stated, it was already done in Connecticut. And funny that you should mention Angie Stone, for those of you that don't know, before she did her solo thing and before she was in the group Vertical Hole, she was in a female rap group by the name... Yes, she was. Yes, uh, she was. I think it was Sequence, <laughs> I want to say. And they had a song yeah. called We're Gonna Funk You Right On Up. We're Gonna Funk You Right On Up. Yep. <laughs> that was what Dr. Dre mentioned at the beginning of Keep The Heads Ringing. So definitely... Yep a pioneer not only in R&B, but in rap for the ladies as well. And she's from Columbia, South Carolina. Shout out to everybody in the Palmetto State, South That's Carolina. Right. Shout out and to them. my home state of North Carolina, because I'm originally hey. from North hey. Carolina <laughs> as well. And, and I also wanted to mention too, at this time when you guys were signed to Mercury, was a four-person group, co-ed, two guys, two girls out of Philly. Who I thought was really dope. Small change. Oh yes, yes, yes. It's funny. I remember when they got signed, man. I remember when, and and I'm going back a little bit when they were um, playing Brian McKnight stuff when we were sitting in the office, um, and and they were trying to figure out how to market him because they didn't know how to market Brian at the beginning because. He was so unique, you know, he had such a unique sound and he's still unique. You know, you listen to Brian, you know his stuff. Um, but they were trying to figure out how to market Brian. So what they did is they paired Brian up with us into our markets that we had and introduced him that way. And it worked, you know, just as well as same thing, small change, you know, um, at that time, they had the boys, you know, so they, uh, Motown had the boys, so, you know, the record company was looking to, you know, kind of get something along those lines, um, and that's when they stumbled upon Small, small Chains, but Small small Chains, you know, they were dope, man, you know, they was, they were, they were really dope. Uh, <laughs> right. I haven't heard that name in so long. <laughs> yeah, we used to have that record at the radio station where I worked at too, um, Teardrops, I used to wear that out, yep. um, This Must Be Love and Why Were My Favorite Cuts by Them, but what was your thoughts on when you first heard Joe? Joe, oh man, when I first heard Joe, I was like, yo, this dude is amazing. Like, I, yo, I, I dug Joe from the jump. You know what I'm saying? Like, when I first heard his songs, because at that time, you could go around the label, and before the stuff came out, they would have just boxes of all the stuff, of all the new artists coming out, and then all the artists that were already out. So I would always go, excuse me, to the office and pick up all of the stuff, because I always wanted to hear new music. I was always thriving to hear new music. So I got Joe CD. I popped his CD in and I was like, yo, dude is bananas. I mean, but you know, anybody who who sings, you know, with Vanessa Bell and and you know was in her choir, I mean, how could you not be dope? You know what I'm saying? But Joe is just he just came in and, you know, he just pathed that way, man. You know, he pathed his way. And, you know, to this day, he's still one of my favorites to mm -hmm. this day. Yeah. So, so by you guys being out during the time of New Jack Swing, what was your take on the lock in urban radio in the late 80s, early 90s that Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Teddy, and L.A. and Babyface had on R&B and pop radio? You know, how could you how could you not want to be involved in that company of, of, of great 
uh, creativeness, you know, artistry. Um, you know, they open doors, you know, for all of us to be able to be creative and all of us for, to, you know, be able to share space and music. You know, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, those cats that you introduce, you know, who's like, you know, the big brothers of the game. And one of the things that I really like the most is that you can still talk to them to this day. You know, nobody's high and mighty and nobody's, you know, um, I'm on a pedestal or whatever. You know, everybody's still humble. Everybody's still meek. And that's the beautiful thing. But I meant to listen to their music and their creativity. They, they inspired us all out here, you know, all of us. And to this day, you know, they're still the matriarchs, you know, of everything. Totally, totally matriarchs. Mm, and also want to get your take on when the album dropped in 92, were there some markets that were your money markets where it's like, hey, we're going to release our singles here. We know we're going to be able to tour well in this region. Were there other markets where you had to do a little bit more as far as the label pumping in more money for promo because of, you know, the territorial differences? Yeah, well, at that time, man, you know, the label really, they really believed in us. You know, the label really believed in us. Um, not just the label believed in us, but the people at the company believed in us as a brand, you know. Um, they genuinely liked us as people. So because they genuinely liked us as people, it made them want to see us succeed you know it made them want to do all it is that they can to make sure that you know people knew who shamari was and is um one of the things that we never experienced thankfully is that we never experienced um people not wanting to be a part of the movement or not appreciating the record and the music um which to us you know we were just humbled by you know, because, um, you know, we would hear stories from people and people would say things to us about certain things in certain areas. And, you know, you get that preconceived thought um, before then. Um, but, you know, we never we never dealt with that. You know, we always we always got love everywhere we went, you know, because we always extended that kind of love and we've always been loving individuals. So, um that kind of energy was always something that was always received when we got to wherever it was we were going. So we were, we were very, very thankful, very thankful. Mm -hmm. And what was Shamari's take on how big of influence groups such as New Edition are also at the same time? My second favorite group of all time, in my opinion, Five Guys Out of Pasadena, Troop. What were your thoughts uh -huh. on New Edition uh -huh. and Troop? Yeah, new edition, man, and true. You know, here's two groups that when you look at these guys, you know, they carry the tradition of what groups are and what groups started off as, you know, back in the days, if you want to go back to Motown with, you know, dancing and choreography and putting on a show. Um, there's nothing greater than to be able to have them, you know, be who it is that they are and then to open up the doors to show people that, hey, listen, you know, performing and coming out here and not just walking around and, you know, holding your microphone and, you know, maybe you just grabbing your crotch a thousand times or whatever, you know, there's more to it than that, you know, it's entertainment, you know, people like to be entertained when they come to the shows and, when you talk about entertainment, you know, Troop and uh, New Edition embodied that. You know, they always stood true to that, to that culture of being able to do that. And, um, you know, that you know, those are the bros, man, you know. Mm -hmm. And then this group, I know for some people, you look at them as a pop group, but I look at them as an R&B group that happened to hit the pop market by accident. And I'm talking about the other group from 
Boston, Massachusetts, new kids on the block. What was your take on new kids? <laughs> I love those dudes, man. You know what I mean? Like, they came and they opened up a door, too. You know, like, they, they made it believable to say that, okay, just because people count you out as the underdog doesn't mean that you have to stop living in your creativity you know, continue to do what it is that you love to do and follow your talent. You know, those guys followed their talent, you know, and, you know, they stuck with the music. And, you know, at the same time, they didn't care what people were saying because, you know, there was always a, 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 I, I, I like them, but I don't like them, you know, what people would say, you know, but, I appreciate those guys, man. Mm. You know, they has, they added, you know, a great texture into the music business. Right. You know, and they give people hope and, and opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you a little tidbit that a lot of people don't know about a group that came at the tail end of New Kids and ushered in the boy band phenomena of the late 90s, early 2000s. So when Backstreet Boys was cutting their teeth, they were performing in North Carolina for a showcase. And actually, Mercury was one of the labels in the running to want to sign them. But what ended up happening was, I think John Mellencamp exed that and told the heads, I don't want a pop group signed on this label. And that's how they ended up not getting signed by Mercury, going over the jive. But Mercury ended up making up for it when signing Hanson. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> yeah, because Oombop was a huge hit, and um, New Kids got to work with Teddy Riley on the 1994 album Face the Music. Now, how did you guys end up working with Teddy Riley, and why was it never officially released? Um, we wound up working with Teddy. Um, we started working with Teddy, I want to say maybe 94, 95. A couple of years after, um, after Shamari, well, maybe it was later than that. I got my dates mixed up. Um, any event, we we got to working with Teddy because um, we were developing our cousin at the time, um, David Miller, who was actually out of Connecticut too as well, and. We were developing David. David was was young, and he had an incredible voice. Um, I'm not going to say that he sounded like Michael Jackson, because no one can sound like Michael Jackson, but he had similar tones in his voice like Mike when he would do certain things. So we started developing David, and we figured that what we would do was put a project together with David and our goal was to get a production deal. After we get the production deal, then we then we release David um, out of our production deal. So in the midst of finishing David's project, um, we were surfacing or shopping, I should say, his project around. We had a lot of interest um, for David. I mean, it was an overwhelming amount of interest that people had for David. But um, the thing that stood out with one of the guys is, is that he was one of our um, all-time favorite producers, which is Teddy Riley. So um, the guy who was doing um, security with Teddy Riley, shout out to my brother Sifu, big bro Sifu. Sifu has been um, Teddy Riley's security for years on top of years. Sifu's brother, Wap, was working at Sony. Wap was um, managing us at the time. And Wap was like, look, I'm going to get this to my brother, and then my brother's going to hand it right to Teddy. So he handed it to Teddy. Teddy listened to it, and as soon as it touched his hands, um, Sifu was on the phone calling his brother Wap, saying, yo, Teddy want to fly these guys down here, man. You know, we need to make this happen ASAP. So um, I say it took about maybe two weeks for everything to kind of transpire because um, this is when Teddy was just coming off uh, the uh, No Diggity album. 
They were just getting ready to release that. The Another Level um, album for Black Street. Yes, yes. It was just getting ready to release that album. And we came right around that time when they had already dropped No Diggity. They just dropped No Diggity. No Diggity was burning. And we had went down there at the time. Teddy brought us all down there. Um, he brought our entire family, my brother's entire family, my cousin's entire family, and my entire family. And we all went down and um, we spent the holidays with him. And it just started to turn into, you know, a great friendship, you know, working friendship. And um, that's how it got into the hands of, uh, that's how we got into with Teddy. And then from there, um, we would go down to uh, Virginia Beach, where he was at at the time, and just go down and just work on tracks and stuff like that and just do music. And for those that don't know what tracks, that's, uh, that's music. Right. And <laughs> that's an you, old school term. Yeah, you, you <laughs> answered my question. I was going to ask, were you guys down in Future Studios? And yes, you were, and that's in the 757, the Tidewater area, for those of you that yeah, don't know. listen. Uh, man, I meant the music that came out of there. You know, Teddy got us a condo right on Virginia Beach. So we were down there on a regular basis. Um, and that's how uh, Lady for Life was born. Um, Lady for Life was originally supposed to be for Boys to Men on, um, on uh, what album was that? The Boys to Men, the one where Teddy Riley did the production. It, they were, it was the black cover. Um, the Evolution um, album with I Can't Let Evolution. It Go? Evolution. Yep, yep. That was supposed to go to Boys to Men, but the record company was rushing the album and they closed the record. They was like, we're not taking any more records right now. But that record was um, originally made for Boys to Men. Then when Boys to Men album closed, Teddy was like, yo, I'm going to use it for Blackstreet. But then at the time, um, Blackstreet, you know, they were doing some things and, and they kind of, you know, went their separate ways from the label and stuff was happening at the time. And that's how that music wound up just just sitting and not getting to where it was it was planned to get to. But, you know, I always say that there's a reason for everything, you know, the reason mm. for everything. But but that's the story behind those those records. And I never forget doing that record because I sat and I did that record when Teddy, they were out of town at the time, they were on a tour. Um, and I used uh, the drums for No Diggity. So if you listen to Lady for Life, when you listen to it, it's the, it's the drums from No Diggity. Wow, that's crazy. And when you were at Future Studios, was Tammy Lucas down there as well? No, Tammy, Tammy wasn't there at the time. She had already um, stepped off, and she wasn't there at the time. Um, Ninth Avenue was there at the time. Um, who else was there? Uh, Big Bub. Bub was there. Um, Diesel. Diesel was there. Um, Sprague. Sprague was there. You know, Sprague's always been been part of the family over there. Um, but no, no, Tammy wasn't there. And, and Tammy's actually, she's always been one of my favorite writers, you know, and arrangers. And her backgrounds, the best in the business. I love it. I love it. You know, her, her and Teddy, you know, the stuff they did together, I meant, you know, it's just, it's a perfect match. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like a Jimmy and Terry project. Yeah. And it's funny that you should mention Big Bub. I thought today, was Cole, and I tell people this all the time, Big Bub, to me, vocally, sounded like what Luther would have sounded like had he gone full New Jack Swing. True. That's a good way to put it. You know, I never thought about it that way, but, you know, you saying that, I, I can envision that, you know. But Bub, Bub was cool, man. You know, we first met Bub, he just, you know, he was cool, man. You know, we, we hit it off right away, and, you know, he invited us over to his condo at the time. It was just so many stories, you know. I could, I could go on and on, but you know, right. um, just a great time. And, right. Uh, and then I was looking up as far as today goes. Um, Bernard Bell, who 
it's Teddy Riley's main writing production partner and also the brother of Regina Bell. He was originally yeah. a member of Today. This is back when they went by the name, I believe, The Gents, I believe. Yeah, yeah, which is which is how he got into doing a lot of that production. Mm. He did it. He he did um a lot of production on today's album. He actually did Why You Getting Funky on me. Oh wow! I yeah. did not I did not know that. And then also what I found interesting too about um Teddy and Bernard was that they had that ear of making it R and B but have that pop sheen appeal to it because when they did I like the way for High Five that was that perfect mix of R and B sprinkle with pop and it was the t- one of the top 10 biggest songs of 91 yeah and that's where bernard came in you know because um bernard was was total church you know he was total 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 church um but at the same time he had you know those those diminished chords and things like that that were amazing um bernard actually did two songs on our project too um um, actually, yeah, yeah, he did two songs. And at the time when we were working with Bernard, Bernard had got the phone call while we were in the studio doing um, Are You Ready? He got the phone call for uh, Remember the Time. So that studio time, uh, that studio session got cut real short. Yeah, because like, when Michael calls, you got to go. Listen, there's no question about it. You're shutting everything down. So it was funny because... You know, we were in there, we were cutting vocals, and he was like, yo, hold on for a second, I got to take this call, because he was waiting to hear back to find out when he had to leave or whatever. Um, so he comes back, and when he comes back in the room, he's like, yo, I'm not going to be able to finish the session. So we looking at him like, what do you mean you're not going to be able to finish the session? And he was like, yo, I just got the call. Um, Mike called me himself personally and told me that they need me to fly out tonight. So that session got cut short. But it was wow. good, though, because look what they came up with. Yeah, with, with Dangerous, man, <laughs> a classic album. And what was your take on Kyle West and I'll Be Sure's production? Because I believe their production and writing doesn't get enough credit. I mean, I'll Be's work, the work that they yep. did with my guys from North Carolina, Jodeci, yep. Tevin yeah. Campbell, and I think Kyle West should be giving his flowers more. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't really know the history behind the whole Jodeci album. You know, I remember when, or before that album even came out, you know, it was just sitting on the desk um, of the A&R guy, um, David Gossett. Shout out to Dave Gossett, who was our A&R guy, A&R guy at the time. Um, I remember them sitting and talking about Jodeci and, you know, looking at their image and, you know, uh, just trying to figure out you know, direction-wise, what was going to happen with them. Um, so as as I was always wanting to hear, you know, what was going on and hear the new, new music and hear new sounds or whatever, I popped this stuff in. And when I popped that tape in, and this was back in the cassette days, when I popped that cassette in, the first thing I noticed was I heard the Kyle West drums. I heard the Kyle West, you know, um, key patches and stuff like that. But it wasn't Kyle West production fully you know what I mean you could tell that they did the same thing they reproduced Devante's music you know to bring it up to industry standard which is the same thing that happened with us so um, I was able to identify that and appreciate that but you know Kyle West and and, and I'll be sure um, they're like unsung heroes of uh, R&B but they're really low key guys, you know, they're really laid back and, you know, a lot of things they, that, that they've experienced and things they've been through, you won't hear it unless you bring the conversation up. That's just how, how low key they are and how humble they are. But, but yeah, um, Kyle West and um, I'll be sure were very responsible for that first Jodeci album. Right. And what was your take on when you first heard, Mary J. Blige and the What's the 411 album where she was a hip-hop version of Aretha. Big vocals, but over hip-hop beats. Yeah, well, I remember, it's funny because before she came out, um, they were promoting her and and Puff was going around to all of the, um, the industry parties and stuff like that at the time. 
Um, and um, Jack the Rapper was big at the time. So mm-hmm. what Puff did was he had a big campaign for Marriott Jack the Rapper. He had people with, um, with jerseys, with the hockey jerseys, and it had what's the 411, it had Mary J. Blige's name on it. And you look around, you see like a hundred to two, three hundred people wearing these jerseys, and it's gonna strike your mind to to try to figure out exactly who that is. Um, we knew who it was already because obviously in the industry there's talk about who's coming out and you know things of the such. But um, before she came out, that's um, one of the things that I think that uh, was massively done for her. You know, having Puffy and and him being able to, you know, be at a time where he was on his promotion game and just promoting her was incredible, man. And, you know, there was no bigger form, platform than um, Jack the Rapper at the time. You know, if you were signed or if you were a producer, a writer, whatever, you had to be at Jack the Rapper or else you weren't networking and getting with nobody to get anywhere. So... Um, I remember they had that big campaign and then they had the signs and everything too. And she was just this little, you know, (laughs) this little short girl, you know, who was just walking through a whole sea of people that they had surrounded her. And, um, you know, she was nervous. I remember to perform because this was her first big performance, but she came out, she did her thing. She had the boots on the black boots, the cap to the back and, they did their thing, man. So, you know, at that time, you know, they just started a whole movement, man. And, you know, to this day, as you can see, you know, it worked. She's still successful in her craft. Yeah, because years ago I had a chance to interview interview Cool Rock Ski from the Fat Boys. And we were talking okay. about Mary yeah. J because, you know, Prince Marky D along with Corey Rooney did a lot of the stuff on What's the 411. Oh, yeah. And oh, a lot yeah, of people yeah. were probably thinking, like, you mean to tell me that same guy from the Fat Boys? Did this? I mean, Marky D's production was nothing to play with. His, him and Corey's work on What's the 411, Prince Marky yeah. D in the Soul Convention, Menagerie. Dude, did, I mean, people had to take him seriously. Real love, you know what I mean? They did real love. With know? samples, so, top billing know, by Audio 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They took that sample and just put the music behind it. I never forget the story behind that, you know what I mean? So, you know, it's it's... It was such a great time in music, you know, it was it was innovative and, and very creative. It's a it's a different energy now than what it was back then, you mm-hmm. know. Um things shifted a lot, man, but you know, music is still great. Yeah. Now were there some acts that Mercury would pair Shamari with and do tour dates with, like um intro from Atlantic or any other groups from any other labels or was it always where you guys kind of found spot dates with XYZ at? Yeah, well we were spot dating a lot. Um we were actually on tour with R. Kelly and Gerald Levert at the time. So what our, our management did was um got the tour schedule for R. Kelly and Gerald Levert. So they looked at that tour schedule and once they looked at that tour schedule, they would look to see what else was happening. So a lot of times we would do like two and three shows in a day. So we can go bounce around, do something with Boys to Men. Then, you know, we bounce around and do something, um, say, on a Mary show or, you know, whatever artists were hopping and happening at that time, we were always doing stuff, you know, with those particular artists artists with the spot dates and still making it back in time to uh, um, be the openers for the R. Kelly and Gerald LeVert tour. Um, So they had us doing so much stuff, you know, even things to this day my brother talks about and it it was too much to remember at the time. You know, I I was the youngest out of the three of us. So a lot of times, you know, I was just like taking everything in and you know, um, just going through the motions of everything. Right. It was a lot. Right. And so the album comes out. You guys are out on. Do you think Mercury could have done more to push it? Or was it that you think was to where the album didn't really go as far as it could have? Because it was dope project, dope album. Do you think it was just because yeah, the of the, t- the timing? Because it was like 92 and it was that no. shift in New Jack Swing and Hip Hop Soul? 
Nah, it wasn't even the timing. At the time, what happened was the label was going through a transition. Um, you know, they had lost the main executives that were there that was already passionate about the project and that knew what it would take to position the projects in certain markets in certain areas. So a lot of those um, people that were working at the label that, you know, we had the relationships with and that were really personal with the project, you know, wind up going to other companies. So because they went to other companies, you bring somebody on that already has an idea of saying, when I get this job, I'm going to put my cousin on because my cousin is hot. You know, you kind of fall into that pigeonhole of things. And that's, you know, really what happened with, um, with that first project. You know, a lot of that stuff that happened with our project, it wasn't really a lot of push behind it. You know what I mean? We went, we went uh, close to top 20. So the, the single reached top 25, you know, and the album charted, I think, in the 30s or something like that at that time. And this was without any push or anything. So, you know, just imagine if the push and everything was in place and, and all of those things would have happened, then the project would have, it would have took a whole different direction. Yeah. And they wanted to resign and they wanted to do another album. Um, but um, at that time, my brother and my cousin, because we did a majority rule, whatever the majority decide, that's what the, um, the plan is going to be. So if two out of the three decide something, the other one just got to eat it, basically. So um, um, my brother and my cousin opted to say that they didn't want to be a part of um, the Mercury family anymore. I wanted to stay, but they wanted to go. You know, mm. so majority ruled out of that. I told him I would always tell that story if it came up. So I'm probably going to catch a couple of blows for that, but it was worth it. Yeah, because <laughs> a lot of the people I've interviewed in the music industry over the years told me the same story that you just told of how when labels go through exec changes and when new regime come in, mm -hmm. the previous regime that was going to bat for you is no longer there and the new wants to come in, do it their way, bring their people yeah. in, sign their acts, and you kind of get it was crazy. Up. Yeah, it was crazy. And the funny thing about it is that we had a bidding war, you know, with people there were there were labels that were bidding um for us to be on their label. So it was uh, it was Motown, it was uh, um Jive Records, RCA, um MCA, like it was all of those labels, man, you know, were labels that were bidding to have Shamari up there, man. And, you know, it just landed the way that it landed, you know, but everything has its right for purpose, you know. Right. And uh, did you guys end up doing any shows with the group Me To You? They were signed to uh, RCA. Uh, Stacey Lottesaw's brother was in that group and they had the hit I remember single, that. I Want You Back. Yeah, I remember that. Um... I think somewhere along the way, we definitely did something. I mean, at that time, I mean, we were too many people that we weren't rocking with, you know. And it's funny because for me, I always listen to hip hop music. So I'd be listening to Pete Rock and CL Smooth or, you know, whatever um, rap project was hot at the time. And then, you know, my brothers and them would be listening to R&B. So I'm, I'm kind of like the edgy one out of the group, you know. Mm. Yeah, so how about what was your thoughts on intro? Because I thought intro should have been bigger. Kenny Green, rest in peace, yeah. vocally yeah. and songwriting-wise was the truth. Because think about it, they were doing stuff for Mary J and for Shinehead before they dropped the their whole, debut in 93. That's right. That whole What's the 411 album, you know, Kenny, Kenny was massively in the studio helping her, you know, do her vocals. He did a lot of vocals vocal production on that album, a lot mm. of vocal production. Um, and um, for that intro, intro was always like, I, I always loved those dudes, you know what I mean? Like, I felt like they didn't get enough burn and everything too, but the label was, you know, they dealt with a lot of stuff behind the scenes because Kenny was, he was a writer, you know, he was a ranger and that was his passion, you know, to put out that album, you know, with his, with the intro brothers and everything like that was good. But, you know, there was just so much that was happening behind the scenes, you know, 
um, that that burn would have been a lot differently if the behind the scenes circumstances were different too. Right, right. Yeah. And, in, and in your opinion, what do you think led Joe after the debut album to go from Mercury to Jive? Your opinion? Seen a better opportunity. You know, he's seen that at the time Jive, you know, they were hungry to, you know, promote. You know, they were hungry to, you know, get behind him and, you know, give him what it is that he would need in order for him to sustain as an artist. And, um, you know, that has to be respected because, you know, one of the things you learn in this business coming in gray and not knowing is that it's business first, you know. It's 90% business, 10% talent and in, in artistry and creativity. So, um that's the hard part learning along the way if you don't already know. Mm-hmm. Right. And were there some acts that you saw pass through Mercury's doors that they had a chance to sign, but they whiffed and passed on? Oh. Go ahead and name it. Go ahead. Who was Boo Boo the Fool and passed up on signing a star that would go to XYZ Records later? <laughs> the Statues of Limitations is up. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to uh, confide in some sources to be able to give those right. sources. <laughs> all right, wise, wise PR answer. Don't want to burn those bridges, but we all know that happens with um, showcases. You end up passing up on somebody. You ain't gonna say no names. Yep. You already know. <laughs> we, we already know who. We already know what. So we're going to protect you, not say your name, and say I was the one that passed on signing so-and-so. Yeah. But we all know, they know that who they, happens. They are. You know they who know you who are. are. We know who you are. <laughs> we'll redact your name and we'll fluff up your voice to um, conceal your identity, man. But um, we yeah, I was wondering, do you remember this guy that was signed to Uptown back in, I want to say, 92, 93, by the name of Nesto Velasquez? No. He was signed to Uptown, um, Latin, Latin guy. Um, he had a single called Personality, and it was, like, taken off. But what ended up happening was it was the fourth quarter, and it was right around during that time in the industry where the industry mm. would take a break for the fourth mm. quarter and resume in the new year. So by the time it came back, there was nobody to push his record. But he, when I interviewed him, he told me he was originally supposed to have been a member of the group, the Barrio Boys. They were signed to SBK Records. And they were oh, put wow. together by um, Joe Jacket, who was in New Kids on the Blocks camp. Yeah, wow. That's what's up, man. You just taught me a piece of history. Yeah, yeah. I and I'll get, yeah, and I'll give you another backstory. Um, I interviewed Joy Marshall from Jade. And she told okay. me that Don't Walk Away was originally for Stephanie Mills. Wow. And I think Stephanie passed. Stephanie passed on that record? Uh, yeah, I think Stephanie oh, Mills passed on Don't Want to Walk Away. And uh, that's how oh, it ended up going, going, for, going, going for Jay. And it became a big hit for Jay. But that was the good thing about the 90s, man. It was stacked vocally, R&B-wise, pop-wise, across the board. It was yeah. it was stacked because I felt once Christopher Williams signed to Uptown, got out of Geffen, went over to Uptown for the Changes album. That guy, that guy, that's all I'm gonna say. That guy, that's <laughs> just how vocally talented Christopher Williams still is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like um, he's like that Teddy Pendergrass. Um, it's like, it's like listening to Teddy Pendergrass's son. Let me put it that way. Mm. You know what I'm saying? With that tone and the texture of his voice and everything, right. you know? Yeah. Right. And you mentioned, shout uh, Chris. you shout, shout out to Christopher Chris. Williams. And you mentioned, um, on the Shamari album, Three Boys from Newark did production on there. Now, Vincent Herbert. He had a hand yep. in discovering a young lady that would soon change the world with her singing, songwriting, and depending on how you looked at it, her outfits. What was your take on finding out that Vincent had a hand in putting Lady Gaga in the game? Yeah, you know, it wasn't surprising. You know, one thing about Vincent, um, when we first met him, uh, he was he was always innovative, you know. Um, when he was in the studio, he had a lot of great energy. 
you know, a lot of good vibes. Um, I remember him, like, wanting so much more to do with our project. Um, but we had already had everything mapped out the way that the project was going to go. And to be honest with you, um, there was uh, some some songs that they had wound up doing at first. We, we, we didn't like the music, you know, we were, we didn't like it. So they did uh, Hurts Me Inside. And um, when we heard the music to some of the production that they did or reproduction they did on our projects, we were actually mad. We weren't happy about it at all, you know, cause we wanted our music to be a certain way. And we felt like the record company was taking that that power of us being able to present our music the way that we wanted it away from us. Um, we didn't see the bigger picture of what it was that they were setting up at the time. Um, so when we first got into the studio and, you know, started working with everyone, the energy was, um, it was a little damp. And um, we had to get past not seeing it being as the record company was trying to take the power away, but just trying to, you know, upgrade our, our sound to an industry sound. Um, and then after we got past that, um, you know, you get what you hear right now, which is, you know, the the energy of if you feel the need, because there's, there's a lot of energy there, you know what I'm saying? And then the hurts me inside, there's, it's a lot of energy there. It's, but it's, it's funny because Kayama Griffin actually he wanted to be a part of the group, you know? He's like, yo, I want to be the fourth member, man. <laughs> and that was the first time that those uh, those brothers were really introduced to the music industry at that time because um, Vincent was very good friends with our A&R, um, David Gossett, at the time. He was actually staying with Dave Gossett. And that's how we got introduced to Three Boys from Newark through um, – David Gossett, you know, so um, shout out to Vince Herbert, um, Kayama Griffin, and um, and Ike Lee. Ike Lee, we wound up bringing Ike Lee in um, later on um, Got to Go Get Ready. So we had him come in and do uh, some drum some drum programming on that. Um, and then he did some other drum programming on another song too as well. Um, trying to remember. But I think I think that was just the one, just to got to go get ready. But but yeah, just just good brothers, man. You know, when it came to that music and and um just quality sound, just good. Now, Great guy. Now once the majority rules took effect that you guys didn't want to be on Mercury anymore, did you guys record another sophomore album and it never saw the light of day, or was it where wait until we get another label to sign us, then we'll go do a possible second album? Nah, we, I mean, we had like three albums prepared after that because that's all we did. You know, all we did was record. You know, we would record, 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 record. That's all we did. We did nothing else. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't go outside regularly or anything. You know, we, we just lived in our craft, you know. Studio rats. That's what, yeah. And, and it was actually like that before we even got the deal because, we were doing all of those kind of things already at home when I was telling telling you earlier about, you know, how we used to just, you know, be at home just working on music and just doing stuff, you know, just because. But once we got that deal and um, we got the budget, it kind of opened up a lot more things for us to be able to do and, you know, got a lot more creative in that area. Um, but that's that's all we did, you know. So we had we had like three albums prepared um, to go and, mm. and and ready. So will any of those albums see the light of day? And will we hear any new music from Shamari? Yeah. Well, now um, what I've decided as of a couple of months ago is that I'm just gonna release um, the stuff that we have because we have so much material, so much music. So I'm going to release it under um, my distribution situation, TRLP Music. I'm just going to send it right through there. Um, I put out four already, and the four joints that I put out, they actually went viral. 
Um, I've been getting uh, a lot of people reaching out from Japan and in London and a lot of different countries um, just wanting more music. So um, I did the four and I was going to do like every Saturday. Then I said, I'm going to do every other Saturday, but I, I'm going to let the four marinate right now. And then um, I'm going to put out some more soon. All so, right. Yeah. We're definitely looking forward to that. Cause Shamari, you guys are a big hit on the new Jack swing forever group on Facebook, you know, and the people are going to be excited about this interview and everything that you have coming out with the unreleased material. Do you have any yeah. shout outs you want to give before we conclude this interview and also plug your social media? Yeah. Uh, let me get with that social media first. Um, the Rasanangli project on Instagram, the Rasanangli project on Facebook, the Rasan Langley Project on Pinterest, the Rasan Langley Project on TikTok, the Rasan Langley Project everywhere. You can you can find that. Um, as far as shout outs, I definitely want to shout out um, my brother Namdi and my brother Troy, um, the other two thirds of Shamari. Um, I just want to shout out everybody that's been uh, downloading this new music and all the new people that I've been meeting I didn't have, I never realized how uh, much people were really wanting to hear um, the music it is that we were doing. Um, and this kind of opened my eyes to a whole new world of things. So I'm going to see to it that the people continue to get the music. Um, so just follow me on social media, follow the journey, uh, follow the music and um, you'll continue to see more and, uh, and hear more. Also, I want to shout out my cousin, uh, Smokey, Smokey, SL Productions. Make sure y'all check him out. He got the heat. He got the studio. I mean, whatever you're looking for music-wise, they can go check him out. You can find him uh, SL underscore productions on uh, Instagram. Uh, check him out and make sure y'all uh, follow him too as well. Follow his journey. All right, do all that, and this interview will be available on all major streaming platforms, Apple, iHeart, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, anywhere you get your podcast, just type beyond the album cover, and the video portion will be available on YouTube at youtube.com slash J85. Click subscribe, smack the bell, so you'll be notified whenever I post anything new on there. Ladies and gentlemen, right here on Beyond the Album Cover, Rasan Langley, one-third of the R&B group, Shamari Rasan. Right. Thank Get you very music. much for doing this Get interview it. for me. Get that music. Sweat show it again. Show it again. Show it again. Show it again. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely got to show the merch. TLRP, TRLP. Get that. Cop that. It's all on the link, man. And thank you so much, Jarell. I appreciate you, man. It's been great talking with you. I see that you are very musically invested into the history of music. And, um, you know, it's always good speaking with people that love music. You know, the conversation is always genuine. So thank you. No doubt. Thank you very much.